for January 15th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 498. Get off my paper. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthunkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out, uh, talking about our favorite movies, TV, books, music, uh, games, comics, whatever's on our mind. That's what we talk about. And the things we like, we like so much more when we can share them with our friends and with you. I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here with my friends, Peter Fenzel. Hi, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello. This week, The Post, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, about the decision to publish uh, the Pentagon Papers at the Washington Post after the New York Times had been enjoined from doing so in the federal courts. So uh, it, is a, it is a weird thing to have a movie about the Pentagon Papers that features the New York Post, uh, because really the, the Times... <laughs> The Times broke that story, right? But I think the no, link... Matt, I think you saw the wrong movie. What? Uh, this movie was actually about post-serials oh. and, and the struggle for Raisin brand identity. <laughs> it was actually really it was really touching because you had the scoops and you had the sun, and I think there's a bear, and I'm not sure, but <laughs> it was really well-crafted, just expertly crafted Raisin brand right there. <laughs> was, was, uh, uh, it should have been called it should have been called The Times, but I think the, the final... Uh, shot in the movie where it's where we see a break in in progress at the Watergate Hotel in in Washington sort of makes uh, makes clear the kind of um, you know the kind of claims that that this movie is making and why maybe it's set in in Washington and with the post which was then kind of a provincial uh, newspaper and not the the Jeff Bezos funded, um, you know, the multi armed. Uh, uh, I don't know what has multi mu- multiple arms. Uh, the uh, the multi armed Colossus that it is now. I mean, I'm not sure. It's, the Colossus it's... has only two arms. <laughs> Maybe the... Goro or Kintaro from Mortal Kombat. I really, I arms. like. I dug myself deep <laughs> into that sense before. I realized yeah. I had no it's, I had no exit it's, strategy. It's apt though. Goro really values the freedom of the press, and with multiple arms, he can write and edit, copy edit at the same time. Yeah, and he engages in freedom of the press by vaulting upward from the fighting area and descending onto your head from elsewhere in the arena, <laughs> and he presses you into the ground. It's uh... so, Pete. I have, a, I have a small well. Actually, I believe okay. it's. Kellogg's raisin brand that has the character of the sun and the two scoops of raisin uh, pouring the scoops of raisin into the brand flakes and that oh that- yeah no no I know that but there was a federal injunction against Kellogg's raisin brand <laughs> and so the movie was actually about post raisin brand which stepped into the gap and supplied the real sun made raisins that led gave it that real raisin taste oh. I, I understand. Well, so the, the other the other uh, reason that that it is sort of relevant to make this movie about the Washington Post, not the New York Post, which is a different paper entirely, <laughs> about the Washington Post is that it's owned at the time by Catherine Graham, uh, played by Meryl Streep, and uh, and that it is a, a movie about women and power uh, at the same time as it is a movie about freedom of the press and and. I guess I, I want to say because movies can only be about one thing. Um, not sure. <laughs> <laughs> not sure if you're aware of that, but that's a rule that everyone has sort of signed on to recently uh, in on you know Facebook comment threads and and Reddit threads and things like this. Movies only mean one thing. And they signify that thing pretty much unceasingly at all points during their, uh, you know, during their length, what, whatever it is. Is this a movie about women in power, that uh, women and power, women in power, uh, that is also about the free press? Or a movie about the free press that is also about women and power? Uh, or is it some kind of crazy hybrid movie, uh, some kind of two-form two monster like a uh, griffin? <laughs> Scoops of movie, even. <laughs> Pete, what do you think? <laughs> I think that the post is yearning for a unity of its two themes and is pushing to try to unify these two. I mean, it's more than two themes, but 
it is really pushing to pull together, pushing to pull. There you go. There's there's some mixed metaphor for you right there. These two themes together, and I'm not sure it quite gets there. And I think that the way in which it doesn't quite get there is interesting and part of why I liked the movie a lot because – uh, I, I kept comparing it to watching Lincoln, and we actually rewatched Lincoln, my fiance and I, this afternoon, just two days after watching The Post, and identified how similar the two movies are, except in Lincoln, you have this figure of Lincoln that, yes, he has to deal with the Civil War and the sort of consequences of death and slavery, and he also has to deal with like congressional politics and, and trying to solve the problem of uh, you know racism in the codified law of the United yeah. States. And, and these are sort of different struggles, but they get pulled together into the persona of Lincoln, who sits at the center of all of it. And in the post... It's a feature, not a bug, that Meryl Streep's character doesn't stride into the middle of this movie with a historical authority. That isn't this apotheosis, this you know, glowing super saiyan of an American uh, tragic heroine, just sort of you know, jumping in and landing and cracking the earth with the force of her righteousness. No, this is a movie that that does feature a heroine who has this internalized sense of her own incapability. And, and heroine is even probably the wrong word. Decision maker. It has a it has a a Schindler who uh, a decider has, the decider a, a decider. It has a Schindler who has delegated the list to others and merely has to <laughs> sign off on it. Um, which is not the way that Spielberg usually does it. Spielberg tends to want to invest uh, these actions with a great deal of personal, more than just agency, lived-in sense of the sort of physical body at work. Uh, you know, sensation, physical sensation, tends to be associated with doing things in Spielberg movies, and that's all over the post, and we can talk about that. But the fact that that this decision to publish when Meryl Streep makes it is done with a dismissing of broader conversation quickly, abruptly and not forcefully, I think, is trying to interrogate even this idea of historical protagonism, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. this idea yeah. that the, the person who makes the meaningful decision that moves history has to look and act a certain way and kind of identifies that with a male sphere and identifies uh, this character with a female sphere. You might, even and- call it, you might even call it a great man theory of history. Well, there you go. I mean, <laughs> yeah. sure. I mean, we're talking about Lincoln, right? Remember the, the great line from Daniel Day-Lewis is portraying Lincoln in the movie, right? I am the president of the United States, clothed with an immense power. He literally says that, right? And it's yeah. awesome. And you believe it. You're hanging on to his every word. It's like, yeah, he is clothed with an immense power. Yeah. But that is, you have to get the total opposite of that in this movie. And then the he, first decision and then the publish was just like, oh, let, let's do it. Yeah. I'm clothed in luxurious silks, right? <laughs> I am clothed in, adults. In, in, a, in a vaguely orientalist caftan. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually one of those in Lincoln also, which is really strange. The Secretary of State wears a vaguely Orientalist caftan at one point. So I'll see if I can find a picture to put in the show notes. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, it's sort of not – I mean she is clothed in immense power. I mean I think uh, it's interesting and also of a piece with the story that she inherited the paper, uh, but the paper was sort of deeded to – the kind of spiritual owner of the paper was her husband, right, who was sort of – who was suited for the newspaper business or was kind of brought up in it by his father-in-law, uh, Meryl Streep's father, um, and that she seems to possess this patrimony in a in an illegitimate way or in an, in a sort of unplanned way, right? It was not supposed to. This is a line of secession. Someone, someone, I guess. Uh, uh, kind of abdicated the throne. I mean, I don't know. That's a callous way to talk about a suicide, but it's it's uh, uh, by killing himself. Her husband relinquished um, uh, d- d- control Leadership, of it. To, yeah, control of, yeah, of the. I mean, ownership. I was I was about to say ownership of the paper yeah. to uh, to Meryl Streep, and that 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 like that that is sort of she would not be a. Um, 
there are two Greek words for for king. Uh, the one that's used in Oedipus is Oedipus Tyrannos, which doesn't necessarily mean tyrant in the sense of like a, a leader with a bad disposition. It means a leader has kind of come to power uh, via means other than the than the established and settled. Oh, I thought it meant a leader with tiny arms. Yep, is a Tyrannos, yeah. <laughs> little itty bitty arms, and a big mouth full of teeth. Uh, yeah, but now absolutely. I've been educated, it, and because of- because they roar and make an R sound, uh, they're called a Tyrannosaurus. Oh, uh, there you go. Uh, you know, that's why they're actually Tyrannosaurus Rex. Kind of, kind of uh, links together the the two words, and and so she's a she's not a Rex. She's a, a Tyrannos, and uh, and whatever the the feminine version of those words would be in Greek, Mark. You uh, did you see it more or less the same way, or do you have a different different take? Well, my overall big picture on this is, is it's kind of a fundamental question: on is this a movie about women in power, or is this a movie about freedom of the press? Uh, I would say, in in a certain way, it's about neither. <laughs> it's about tearing down of old power structures. Um, and I think okay. Matt, you're talking. We were starting to talk about this with sort of the inheritance of the paper uh, and how it, uh, you know, it's kind of fell into her hands through uh, unconventional ways, and she's not seen really as quite a legitimate uh, a, a publisher, you know, a leader for the paper. But uh, at a superficial level, right, the, the tearing down of old power structures are the cozy relationship that the press had with the presidency, and also just kind of like, frankly, like the the presidential authority to wage war on behalf of the United States, and this kind of like general good faith in institutions, which would only further get dismantled with uh, the Watergate scandal. So the one-two punch of uh, Vietnam and, and Watergate dismantles a certain type of American power structure. And then likewise, uh, the dismantle, uh, the other dis- power structure we see dismantled in this movie is that of the patriarchy, right? In uh, all sorts of ways, you know, how Catherine Graham leads the paper, how the, um, the, the, like the legal uh, paralegal, whatever, working for the United States government, you know, cozies up to Catherine Graham before the trial and says, oh, I hope you win. And then as Graham descends the steps from the Supreme Court and is flanked by the the phalanx of women who will kind of like, you know, take up the mantle and, and lead the next generation. Um, so that's my answer to it. It's a, it's a bit of a cop out. Sure. But um, d- dismantling power structures, it's, it's definitely there. Yeah. I mean, uh, the well, yeah, it's. So many directions that that um, that we should go. Pete, I, I have a question for you. Was there any scene in the movie that you took to be kind of thematically paradigmatic of the movie as a whole? Uh, perhaps a scene in which people talk about something not related uh, to the <laughs> to the main thrust of the movie, but instead talk about some seemingly trivial or insignificant detail, but which turns out, when considered in light of the full force and tonnage of the plot and themes of the film, seems extraordinarily consequential in retrospect? (laughs) Why, yes, Matthew, it does. And part of the conflict for me with this movie is I felt like there were two of them that served different purposes and spoke to the different themes, but the one that comes the closest to unifying the movie, or at the very least, representing a unified idea of the movie that perhaps the movie aspires to but does not quite reach— is the lemonade stand scene. I love the lemonade stand in general in this movie and its presence, of course, as a, as a stand-in for entrepreneurial business and also as a stand-in for news. What They walk up to the lemonade stand and they ask, oh, what kind of lemonade is it? Before they buy the lemonade from the lemonade stand. And, and the little girl says, the kind with lemons. <laughs> Which is, of course, self-evident, but when you consider it in the context of the news, you know, oh, what kind of newspaper is it? A kind with news. Lemons, of course, sourness, badness, a lemon car is a bad. Life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Bad happenstance, bad fortune, bad news. So a newspaper without news is like lemonade without lemons. It's just sugar water. But the idea that this is the kind of lemonade that has lemons is what makes it desirable. And there's, and not only that, as the working session, the frantic working session develops, the lemonade keeps coming back and the price of the lemonade goes up as the lemonade becomes in greater demand when times are worse, which is not necessarily what you would think. People are under stress, people are tired, people are dealing with crisis, and now the lemonade with lemons is worth 50 cents instead of 25 cents. Which would, which would speak to Meryl Streep's claim that quality leads to profitability, which what we really mean here is honesty 
in the face of power under difficult circumstances leads to profitability. People will buy the lemonade with the lemons when they're having a lemon kind of day, even more so. Um, and I thought that the, the idea that this all gets put into the hands of a little girl who then ends with a giant wad of cash <laughs> is, is sort of the, the way in which it, the uh, feminist and First Amendment concerns of the movie juxtapose, jam up against each other. Because while I see what you mean, Mark, about this being a movie about tearing down power structures, it's also a movie about existing power structures that continue to exist yes. and are reaffirmed. Yes, institutions. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's a movie that believes oh, yeah, 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 institutions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which in, in the modern <laughs> that as well. Yeah, yeah, but in the modern sense, institutions are very weak, and that's a big part of the problems that people are dealing with and coping with modern culture is that trust in institutions has declined, and there's been a lot of unpredictable and and uh, unexpected consequences of that. Uh, you know, now that people don't people now people don't vaccinate their children as much because in general trust in a healthcare system has gone down to the point where independent people can just say, hey. You know, hey, I'm no as much as a doctor. I didn't go to school, but why do you trust experts? Why do you trust you know institutional knowledge? Why do you trust people because of their license or their certificate or their authority? Why don't you just trust me? Uh, that's not the kind. It's not the kind of movie that this is. This is a movie where Meryl Streep is backed with a, a literally giant grinding machine that amplifies and empowers all of her decisions, and where she lives under a Supreme Court that validates her moral risks. And in that comfortable strata, she's able to exercise institutional power. Uh, and, and so the little girl with the lemonade stand doesn't want to replace dollars with Bitcoin. She wants dollars, <laughs> right? So, uh, uh, And I think that's worthwhile. This isn't one of those movies where in order to exercise will in the face of history, Thero has to resolve to mass violence, uh, which is often the way of saying, well, you know, nobody's going to help you. You're out there in the West with a gun, and that's what you're going to do. Anyway, I've talked about it too much, but there, what I mean is... Yeah. There's a, so this is whimsical, and it's a rat hole, yeah. but there's a, a business school professor who has, like, a YouTube channel, because apparently that's what you have to do these days if you want to be an, an institution, and uh, and uh, told a little anecdote which I think is is uh, interesting, and, and might be slightly on point here. He asks uh, students in a class on on marketing on the first day, what is the most powerful brand in the world? Uh, I don't know. I, either of you want to take a stab? Real, I mean, I don't mean to belabor this, but uh, the most pe- powerful brand in the yeah, world, yeah, or the most, the best brand, the most, you know, the most uh, uh, pervasive brand in the world. Parenthood. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Christ, know the Christian cross. Yeah, maybe maybe uh people come up with Coca-Cola, um things like this. I mean, I think the Christian cross is kind of outside the scope because it's not involved with oh, the business. Oh, so he's actually not asking for a glib answer. No, no, no. no. He wants a real answer like like uh like Juicero. Uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh Mark it says the Christian juice with 200 pounds of pressure per square inch. How much more powerful than that uh, do you want to get? You know, Pete, that's that's a uh, it crushed juice with 200 papers. Institutions falling all, all around us. Uh, the answer that, that he gives in, in this sort of imagined Socratic colloquy is uh, the United States dollar, which uh, has, in, is, has almost 100 uh, percent permeation, like recognizability, owns a color and has positive associations with <laughs> almost everyone who, who uh, possesses one over the, you know, over the course of, of their experience I think, with I think it. Grimace from McDonald's has the same feature, right? <laughs> <laughs> he owns a color and everyone who has possessed one. One has a positive experience. <laughs> Can you really? Can, who hasn't had a grimace, who's, can, <laughs> or who has had a grimace and does not like them? Can you? Can you really possess a grimace? Uh, however, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what Lincoln is about. The, it's about freeing free the grimace. So that's, that's not fair. That's not good. So this is really, I mean, this is a movie that's kind of in, invested in these, uh, in sort of enlightenment ideas and the and the sort of the founding ideas of sort of ambition counterpoised against ambition. Actually, Lincoln is not. Um, uh, off point here because the the biography uh, of him on which the Lincoln movie is based um, is called Team of Rivals, right? And the yep. idea the idea that somehow in the uh, in the not antagonistic but adversarial system. Um, of uh, interest counterpoised against interest, somehow something that we might call the truth uh, comes out. Something that we might call, you know, progress. Progress is made. I, I think that that there are, um, I think that there are critiques of this 
that are reasonable, but this movie is not making any of them. This movie is pretty invested uh, in the idea that that these institutions that these institutions are good, and that you know that. WikiLeaks is not good, right? Like, there's there's this whole thing of like, will this put one American service member in danger? Uh, this is a a big kind of moral point, and I think that the the movie is kind of really trying to you know dot its t's and cross its eyes morally here, and kind of come down hard on the idea of responsible, uh, sober professionals, you know, with the power to make good decisions in in the interest of other people. That's another idea that has yeah. come under fire a lot in recent years um, because of the because of the the decline of institutions. M- many of them with good reason, right? Like uh, there's enough there's enough bad practice that it does make it easy to dismiss the good the good practice as well. And you know we don't need to trot out the Isaac Asimov quote uh, about ignorance and knowledge to sort of think that like this may not be a new thing in American life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that um, when you're thinking about uh, the the persona, personas here, the, the morally empowered personas and the desire that you might have to have the right person make this decision, think about all those other newspapers where they run it because the Post ran it. Yeah. Oh, the post ran it. We're going to run it too. They don't have to. Those people don't even get depicted in the movie because they don't make the decisions. They follow the decision makers. The decision makers are shown as the people who shape history. And whereas I think you could look at it differently in the sense of, okay, there's an incentive here if these kinds of documents can get out into the open for them to become published. And the exception would be if you were able to prevent it in some way. Uh, and like the technology is going to continue to enable it. Certainly, there are a lot of efforts in the 500 years preceding the events of the post to prevent people from printing things that are have mixed success at best right uh the power of the printing press is hard to oppose even from a great seat of even clothed in immense power it is hard to oppose the printing press uh even to the extent that the actual machinery gets outlawed in a lot of places uh and again i keep keep coming back to the machinery the giant machines and all the power of those giant machines to reproduce the newspaper i kind of wish about i wish the post had connected the the upstairs they said oh the the upstairs people are making their decision and then we're going to run the story but that's not how these spielberg stories work we get little snippets of these secondary these tertiary historical figures these sort of real people who populate our washington such instead of wandering extras you know muttering rhubarb and spinach under their breath to appear as if they are making conversation yeah yeah, sorry, cash out the joke, Pete. Sorry. Oh no, no, just that that Spielberg likes to populate his historical fiction with identifiable humanist personalities who might themselves be protagonists of their own movie. And one of the many movies in the post that I would have liked to have watched in addition to the post is the movie about the relationship between the downstairs people who really weld the material power of the printing press to scale out information into large piles of paper that get distributed all over the country, presumably, or I guess the region at this point, and then the people upstairs who guide the content that goes into it. And, you know, the, the idea that there's a person upstairs who types the story and edits it, and then there's a person downstairs who types the story again in lead. And those two people don't seem to have a relationship. Yeah. That's interesting. So what, and that's sort of, what, yeah. You wanted, like, you wanted something like Georgetown Abbey? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, upstairs, downstairs. That's a great example where Downton Abbey starts out with the ringing of the bell and you see the machinery of the bell and it shows you the the bell that summons the servants to go upstairs which is rang by a string that's pulled in the upstairs of the house and then you see them like laying out the silverware and laying out the flatware and all the work that goes into the material exercise of this abstract notion of nobility. Uh, I just find that really interesting. Maybe I think that's just an issue of personal taste more than something I wish the movie had really dealt with more directly just in the sense that like so when Meryl Streep says near the end of the movie she says that she really wishes that she she really doesn't want to let anybody down 
That's what she wants. And she's like weeping, right? And she's on the edge of tears. Yeah. And she's like, what she really wanted to do more than anything else is not let anybody down. And that sentiment is the same sentiment as is put in the mouths of John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Richard Nixon, in why they continue to engage in the war in Vietnam, because they don't want to be the person humiliated for failing the American public by handing the American public a defeat. That they're not willing to accept the responsibility of losing. I mean, I think that and well, the humiliation. Of yeah, it. I, I I think that in her in Meryl Streep's mouth, it's a little uh, it's a little different. I mean, the 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 movie does a lot of work. I think. Oh, yeah. To to separate the two, you know, the two different kinds of letting down and uh, the two different kind, you know, and like because one it does is like some work to connect them too by putting so, McNamara and her in the same house and making them friends and having them talk to each other, relate to each other. Right. I mean, it separates them, but it connects them. It's doing both. And what I'm saying is that it's making lateral connections rather than vertical connections. Yeah, sure. I mean, this, you know, this, this is the director of E.T., the sort of the source of our theory of the benevolent and the malevolent conspiracy, right? Mm. And like, it's, you know, you sort of want, the, the answer is that like good institutions, bad actors, right? Like Nixon, McNamara, like all the, all the, um, all the badness yeah, it's 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 interesting. It really does sort of localize goodness and badness in these uh, in these individual uh, in these individual people. And Meryl Streep's sort of seemingly offhand, but I think that there's a lot. I don't know. I think it's a good performance, and there's a lot going on in that moment when she's uh, um, when you know she's making that decision at the party. The good, the good, and the bad actions, rather than rather than good and bad institutions, or sort of cor- noble or corruptible, corruptible. Uh, Institutions, institutions with their own centers of gravity, their own weight, their own logic, their own, as you say, sort of machinery. I think the machinery is one of the best things in this. Actually, seeing um, you know uh, column uh, columns of type being put together, a compositor puts those together, and then a proofreader reads them over backwards. Like it's uh, it's it's pretty cool. The you know the physical the physical disciplines, the sort of of crafts, trades and crafts that went into the production um, of a... That's why it's called proofreading. Yeah. Wow, I just realized that. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been doing it for years. Because you're, te- oh, you're testing the... You actually, I guess you don't actually proof the uh, proof the things. They actually read the... the... Well, you're reading a proof. A proof is the, the cast metal, right? Yeah, well, no, I think a proof is actually, it would be a, like running off one... Uh, but yeah, that's uh, okay. but it's 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 related to the sense of prove meaning to test rather okay. than it's right. a, so it's a tester. But that that like and and then finally, um, sorry, Mark, one more one more point. Finally, the the thing that all this kind of heavy machinery does, and uh, and I would connect this also to the kind of the bales of newspapers that like are three dimensional and fall you know fall to the ground out of the backs of the trucks with a sort of a satisfying funk onto the the uh, road that like there's there's effort made to kind of give weight to information to kind of extrude an idea out into the uh extrude an idea out into the third dimension yeah i I loved love love those aspects of the movie and you know credit of course to you know spielberg and his uh you know visual imagination and how he uh takes abstract concepts like the morality of the decisions being made and then puts them into these raw uh, almost like force of nature type of things right with the the type hitting the paper and then the paper hitting the pavement and that sort of thing um okay so but we have these like kind of like this like celestial battle practically going on here right Uh, and and just to uh, address pete's uh, the trying to thought earlier around how you know wanted to see more of a connection between the upstairs and the downstairs, as it were. It's like you know the the upstairs has a celestial battle, and then uh, the downstairs, the people in the press. Uh, it is not their role in this movie to take part in that battle. It is just to uh, you know uh, put that machinery into motion and be kind of like you know uh, enable these forces of nature then to, to, to take shape uh, based on the outcome of the celestial actors. Um, but so we've been talking about on one hand you know the the, the bad actors and the institutions, you know, the, the president and so forth, and then the good actors, the press, you know, who make these noble, brave decisions, things like that. But uh, we haven't talked yet about the lawyers. Who are in between, right? In particular, the lawyers for the Washington Post who are strongly advising against publishing 
um, because of their sense of risk and uh, sort of looking more on the on the negative, the, the significant negative downsides for uh, sort of the worst case scenario where uh, Bradley and Graham get uh, arrested and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I would love to hear you guys talk about their role in this cosmology as it were, and also their, uh, their their physical portrayals in the movie, uh, particularly that of Jesse Plemons, who uh, seems to pick up all sorts of uh, unsavory roles in, in, in movies over the years. Landry? Oh, I, mean, I thought that was great. <laughs> Todd. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it reminded me, again, of Lincoln, when you meet the three uh, emissaries who've been sent from the Confederacy to negotiate peace, which you don't want to have happen because you don't want them to negotiate peace before slavery ends. And one of them is Rorschach from the Watchmen movie, and one of them is the evil vice president from 24. <laughs> And he doesn't even have any lines. He's just like evil president from 24. Sorry, spoiler for 24. The evil vice president becomes the evil president at one point. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so you're like waiting for this lawyer to show up. And then it's Todd from Breaking Bad in a movie where De- where Bob Odenkirk is already in it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was the other one. This one had like relationships. This one had like multiple people from the same thing who were in the movie and had relationships with each other that were based off previous movies. But the point being that the lawyer enters as an as a bad omen, as as an as someone who's in opposition to what should happen, as somebody who is trying to take away the uh, the decision. To remove the decision. This happens in Lincoln also, where at the big confrontation, when you expect the vote to be yes or no, it initially is, well, let's postpone and not make the decision. And the big statement is we need to make the decision. The decision needs to be made by, by us, uh, and that is important. So in that sense, this idea of the celestial battle, their power is decision-making. There's not a lot that actually happens in this movie. I think is that fair to say? Is it fair to say that the post is a movie where not a lot actually happens, and where most of the main narrative action of the movie could happen at any time, uh, and it just basically consists of they 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 fly a box on an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) If that is not what Aristotle meant by action, I do not know what is, sir. I mean, just but just think about it. They they need to transport these pieces of paper from a motel room to a newspaper news room uh, to a guy's house and there's a whole thing about them getting put into a very not just any cardboard box but two very specific cardboard boxes and we even get close-ups of the fiber of the twine that is holding the boxes together in order to imbue this act that in the modern day would be considered not really an act as sort of merely the process information moving from one place to another the courier is at no real risk there's nothing that's going to happen is this a thing that's happening well we're going to give it a sensory aspect to make it feel grounded and realistic and identifiable and that's going to make it a thing that happens but in the in the larger sense there's only three or four things that happen in this movie i think that are sort of uh, that aren't just like spider-man 2 oh no i don't want to be spider-man oh no you have to be spider-man oh no i don't want to be spider-man oh you got to be spider-man it's like okay uh which i've griped about for years probably undeservedly i probably need to watch spider-man 2 again but this whole thing about like i don't want nobody cares if darkwing duck doesn't want to be darkwing duck but it does it does kill time Which and again, this, I know these are real things, and the conversations that the people have are interesting and important. But I feel like a lot of this movie uh, treads water on things actually happening in order to show you symbols and spaces and how people are dressed and the situations in which how things are done. And then the lawyers are there to say, "Well, what if this movie was just that? What if it was just Creedence Clearwater Revival music and people walking around in period costume and nobody actually made a decision? Isn't that an option? Can't we all just go home?" Uh, and it's like, no, we are angels and we need to act like angels, which means we need to cast down divine judgment. Or at least we need to play second fiddle to someone else who is going to cast down divine judgment by flying around and doing our specific job in the way that is right. I don't know, Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that angels do need to cast down divine judgment or else why even call them that? Uh <laughs> 
<laughs> is it angels casting judgment? I was thinking more of Moses coming down with tablets, or really the New York Times Moses came down one hat, one tablet, and then the Washington Post Moses came down with another tablet. Yeah. So this is the story about the person who tried to stop the Israelites from worshiping the golden calf during Moses's second trip up the mountain. When he like comes down, he's like, "Oh man!" and he breaks the tablets. And doesn't he have to go back up to the mountain? Uh, yeah, no, no, he does. But he like, isn't it? Isn't it more than that? It's like, oh, you want you like this fine food and drink well how about you have this fine food and drink made of ground up tablet you know like <laughs> like I, th- I thought it was a, a detail of the story that always struck me as particularly uh not a lot of biblical stories has a you know like a physical component like a, a telling sensory detail but i think like pounding the you know pounding the the tablets into chalk or whatever and like mixing them up into the thing and forcing the people to drink them was was one is that or did i just did i just uh uh, imagine that 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 was a that that was a thing in the thing yeah i mean the lawyers the lawyers are definitely the the lawyers are definitely um representatives of the status quo and representatives of a kind of a quiet a quiet life you know what i mean like not not making waves not rocking the boat and there's a lot of stuff that's that's put into that the the uh public uh offering of the paper on the stock market the um you know the kind of the the uh uh proposed illegitimacy of Meryl Streep's um the ownership of the paper and and authority at the at the paper the whole you know the the whole uh thing like that is definitely about kind of not uh is is about a kind of a murky stasis rather than a decisive um a decisive clarity right and that's like uh you know like the vietnam war <laughs> a murky stasis yeah <laughs> well also like this the women's room after the conver- the dinner conversation and this sort of space of women that's occupied throughout the movie where they're in this suspended stasis of comfy clothes and idle chatter where they've internalized this is the world that they have to live in and 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 yeah and then they don't get to make decisions and so it's interesting that that's a as i sort of said before that's a feature not a bug of meryl streep's character in this is that she comes from that world where deciders don't decide and she becomes a decider yeah i know i'm trying to think what is it that actually does it because i don't think it's one of those big psychodramatic moments it's a little moment it's played little and I'm not sure that it's really played in a sort of uh, Freudian psychodramatic kind of way of like, yeah, she has this – well, she has a trauma that she's trying to get over about her husband who committed suicide and what she owes him. So I guess it is kind of like a Freudian uh, psychodrama in that respect in a very conventional sort well, of way. Yeah, Pete, did, um, you, did you go to the bathroom when, when she has the speech You know, near the, near the end of the second act when she says, ever since I was a little girl, I've wanted to be a police officer, uh, but I can't be, so let's publish. Right. The the uh-huh. no the, the the film the film does not do the Law and Order SVU yeah, yeah. style uh, uh, you know kind of psychological explanation or sort of like characters early history explanation that seems to like um, you know that seems to explain everything about Wait, them. Which it is, doesn't. It's it's a what about re- the quiet moment with her her daughter? Yeah, Alison that, Brie. Actually, that's and, a, and like reading the, reading the the notes like that uh, that uh, Alison Brie fed. To Meryl Streep uh, to prepare her for her her stepping up to the to the big leagues wasn't that a little bit of that going on? Sure, well, sort of the family trauma uh, imbuing the character with purpose and and leading it all to this moment. Yeah, but what I mean, I, I what tips her? What tips the balance in the moment? You know. Yeah, I, I think what we're ta- we're talking. Go ahead, go ahead. I, yeah, and I think that like the the part of this is like. She she realizes that there's kind of a legacy. To, to live up to right like that there's a duty that there's a duty to perform um and that that you know she that she has an obligation uh to to sort of behave she has an obligation to behave in a certain way and sort of damn the damn the torpedoes because it's gotta be because because of because duty right like in that sorry i'm I'm stumbling around this idea because i'm trying to form the thought as i'm articulating it but that there is a um uh that there's that there's an important thing in the difference between her and 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 nixon is that they are trying to uh they're trying to avoid embarrassment and she is trying to avoid shame or uh you know some some sort of similar dichotomy that you want to make along those lines 
Yeah, I feel like the difference, and I think it's interesting that you bring this up, is there is a sort of, I mean, I said Freudian, so I'll stick with it. There's like a clutch and release that tends to happen in psychological dramas where you reach the point of decision, and there's this dimension of we know the character kind of doesn't want to do a certain thing or has a reason not to do a certain thing or act in a different way. And and then the 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 specter of the the history looms large within them and kind of forces its way through the barrier there. And it's a very, and in describing it, it seems like a very masculine sort of thing to have happen that there's that your past sort of penetrates your present and kind of for either, either forces you to do it or like you, you force your way past it. Or, and I'm trying to think of a great example of, of this. Well, I mean, Lincoln has a ton of them and it does a roll call vote where it shows you each man who's like, I don't know if I can do what I can do it yes you know like oh i don't know if i could vote to vent slavery by can and there's this like uh, the walton goggins right is one of the guys and he's yeah. like uh he's afraid that people are going to literally murder him if he votes to end slavery which seems like a reasonable fear to have well given he's, where he lives he's shane from the shield and you know yeah, exactly. And so he's like, you can, you can shoot me, but I still vote for it. And there's this idea that the, the – so the, in order for it to do that in the post, she would have to sort of like have the note in her hand and like look down at the note from her daughter. And like it would be very cheesy and corny. Uh, but that's sort of what I'm saying is that, the, that Meryl Streep's character is less corny because her decision to do it kind of sneaks up on you. And and the the ground you're right, Mark, in saying, and I'd revise it. What I was saying before, the groundwork has been has been laid throughout the movie. The history has been put there so that when she does it, it makes sense. But it hasn't been built up as this kind of tsunami of subconscious impetus that needs to break through the resistance of her uh, kind of internalized helplessness. It's instead a, a sort of like a slow additive, gentle process because she's kind of a gentle person. And and the way that she makes decisions, I mean, she says it to her own people, This is, it's her paper. If you're not on board with how she makes decisions, then you need to be on a different board of directors, which I think is it's interesting that her manner of making the decision is different than what you might expect. It is her nice way of saying, get off my paper. Well, exactly. It's the same pieces, but instead of saying get off my plane and punching him, she like walks up to him and like clips him to the thing and like gives him a little shove. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, it, it has the same effect. You know, it's it's an act of the same consequence, right? But she doesn't give the one-liner when she says it. And it's like, "Oh, you have to let off some steam." You know, boom, like <laughs> looks like somebody needs freedom of getting pressed. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, you've got to put another couple plates on the post. <laughs> Looks like this room is full of second amendments instead of first amendments. No, it's not. There's no like commando style, which is good. Which is good. It's not bad, but it's just what's interesting and different about it. Because there are other movies that are prestige movies that have, uh, you know, even that are looking to tear down patriarchy specifically, that have big moments that feel the need to. I mean, the Florida Project comes to mind, which has like a huge cathartic moment at the end, which I won't talk about now to spoil it because what's the point? But like, there's no need for it. As as in, like, it's it's not. It doesn't emerge organically from the sequence of events that lead up to it in the movie. It just sort of exults in this 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 chaotic maelstrom of psychological inputs that have gone into these characters up until this point. And then there's like this penetrative, like, bah, primal scream moment where the decision is made. Uh, and in the post, it's like, no, publish. And it's the machine that does the work. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, it, yeah. yeah, there's no like, there's no hand reaching, hovering over the button. Well, you know what I mean? Will the finger yeah. make contact? Will the finger make contact? But they even put the moment in later, but it's meaningless. Yeah. When Tom Hanks calls and is like, okay, print it. And he's like, all right, I'll push it. So this is a movie that wants to be conventional and have a movie um, um, action that feels like that. But in the context of the story, it's not meaningful because the decision has been made already. Let's talk about that. for Let's talk about that for a second. This is a movie that wants to be conventional, you say. And I agree. And I I just I enjoyed that so much about it. (laughs) You know, that that is to say it's it's like almost blindingly well made. It's uh, uh, just fantastic actors, not just. 
the leads who are very good, but a whole uh, supporting cast with multiple intersections of meta casting opportunities, but also just solid, uh, you know, just solid people, solid good actors, and um, and just uh, you know, well shot, like clear, clearly shot. The the everything like was of a piece. The cinematography related to the story and kind of revealed character uh, and all the the kind of thematic stuff I mean with the with the sort of schism that we're talking about or the kind of the the two natured uh, thematic character of the movie but like it was it was expressed you know what I mean in in a competent uh, in a competent way and just in like uh, I, I guess it's too facile anymore to talk about like oh you know all the the Oscar based movies come along um once once a year and i i suppose they are i mean they're oscar bait movies they feature not extremely characterized but sort of like uh impressionistic uh in in the sense of doing an impression not in the sense of like you know uh, watery painters but the the uh or watery paintings by watery painters the um you know, it it features that style of performance. It it is uh, presumed to to uh, what pander to the the supposed uh, political tastes of the Hollywood establishment who will be voting for it. Um, it it actually you can kind of even shoehorn Hollywood in because like they're kind of like publishers, right? <laughs> right? Uh, and the uh, uh, and the, that so like talking just talking about it as a as a awards movie doesn't doesn't really do it justice. But there, there does seem to be like two, two months of the year where we get movies that are not a bunch of CGI things blowing up, or maybe, maybe it's just what we watch and talk about on this podcast. I guess we did talk about the Florida Project, which was a step in a good direction. Um, step in a good direction for us. I don't know. Do you, I mean, it's not just you... us. They've stopped making. I remember when we talked about State of Play when that movie came out. Yeah. Which that was. I always that was a benchmark for me. That was 2009. That was overthinking it year two that we talked about State of Play. Maybe I just talked about it with you. I think we talked about it on the podcast. And it's a movie that's similar to The Post, although it has more actual reporting by the reporters as opposed to the idea that the information is sort of provided to you by a historical archive. But um. That's a Russell Crowe, Ben Affleck movie about a reporter trying to uncover the truth. And I remember talking about it and being like, man, you know, it's been a while since I've seen a movie like this. And I'm thinking that it's my choice. And it's like, well, yeah, these movies aren't really profitable that much anymore, so people don't really make them. And they don't certainly don't make them as often, as frequently for theaters as they used to. And that was 10 years ago, nine years ago. Yeah, I mean, and like a lot of things have happened since then, the rise of digital streaming, the movement of these things off of, you know, the big screen and into into sort of smaller formats, um, smaller scale formats, I should say. I guess a lot of, uh, like, you know, Westworld was a pretty pretty epic and sweeping and high-budgeted undertaking, I suppose. But, but, uh, yeah, it's not, but that that sort of mid, that sort of mid-range, um, middle brow, intellectually serious, you know, non path breaking. Like, like Florida Project had very high, had a had a sort of very rarefied. Oh, it was artsy. It yeah, was like had artsy. a had a very yeah. rarefied artistic project, right? Yeah. And that this is just sort of solid. You know, this is just solid Reader's Digest condensed books. Uh, uh, solid competent um story storytelling let's talk about yeah. this before before we wrap up as a movie for for this time you know it's it's reported in a couple of places that like there was a um fortunate uh uh problem with another movie that Spielberg was directing um, and so a hole opened up in his schedule and like you know he read the script and then fast worked on it quickly probably got uh, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep involved quickly and with that like it was you know the, the wheels were turning the, the the they pushed the button on the big machine and the big movie machine hmm. uh, you know um, extruded this movie and in, in, into the form that it, it reached our our eyes with uh, because of some sense I guess that this is a movie for now i mean this is a movie uh for our time i mean in what sense is this uh a movie for our time um i don't know do you do either of you want to take a stab at that i thought this beside, is a mo- beside the obvious because trump i mean like yeah. and his attack well, on the free press 
sure. I, th- I mean, I feel like, yes, but I feel like the free press was eroded in almost more significant ways. I mean, the, 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 the attacks on the free press by Trump are so... Uh, uh, by the Trump administration, I should say, or so kind of ogre-ish, and and they're 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 almost too easy to kind of see and and condemn. I mean, I feel like there's kind of an erosion of press freedoms and and kind of the role of the press as an institution that had happened uh, previous to that. That that is almost more insidious. Like it's 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 helpful if you can wrap it up in a Nixon or a Trump who who seem to be you know who seem to be purpose built as Dick Tracy villains and it's not uh just my sense of my sense of the kind of the the multiple cultural forces that have led to the erosion of the the authority of newspapers or you know press you know establishment press outlets in general um is more complex than that i guess yeah i mean i think that in the beginning of the movie you have that really critical scene where mcnamara is actually speaking out in favor of ending the Vietnam War in favor of of speaking openly about how badly it is going. And this is, what, 66, 67 that this is happening? It's like, is it supposed to be five years prior to the events of the movie, which takes place in 1971? So maybe it's 67. Uh, and Matthew Reese, wonderfully metacast, the star of The Americans, along with Kerry uh, uh, Russell, the spy, as the spy, and he, he sort of is called into their conversation, and there's the argument, is the Vietnam War getting better or is the Vietnam War getting worse? Right. And what he says he's most surprised at is how much it stays the same. And the follow-on to that is, well, we're spending tons of resources and time on this. If it is staying the same, that means that it is getting worse, Was I thought an interesting conclusion that McNamara seems to draw. That the situation must be getting worse because we're spending more money, more people are dying, and it's not getting better uh, because you know there's a cost. There's an opportunity cost to not killing these people, and, and that's one way of reading it. And so when you look at the ways in which it's – because it's a combination of having a head of state similar to Nixon who very transparently sees people as enemies and targets people as enemies independently of his constitutional authority to do so, independently of the sense of his office. What Matthew Reese does another great speech in here where he talks about, and it might be pulled from real life for all I know, that when you get in a situation where the head of state sees his own interests as the uh, as being uh, protected under any sort of rule that protects the interests of the country. Uh, and that's him saying that he is the state, right? And then I think that when you're dealing with somebody that's this self-centered and narcissistic, you get into this idea of the things that protect the country protect me. And that feels familiar. And maybe it's more, it's less the sense in that case that the infringements upon the freedom of the press are worse and more the player in the conflict is similar and things haven't gotten better and people have been spending a lot of effort and money and time trying to make them better. And in that sense, that should worry us because it means we're losing. And topple that with the collapse of newspapers and, and the collapse really of reporting and journalism, which is ironic because the movie doesn't really have a ton of reporting in it, but it does have substantial long form information. Uh, in reporting, in the sense of the reporters don't go interview a lot of people, not in this movie anyway. No, the, uh, it, it yeah. literally drops into their laps in a box, yeah. two boxes, yeah. right? Like, like we see a little bit of legwork. Yeah, that, I was wondering if this weren't a, a real, if this weren't a non-fictional sort of piece of historical fiction, uh, I would have loved to have seen the newspaper get out of it by claiming that their source was actually the girl in the tie-dyed skirt that that one random guy was able to very accurately recall from memory. <laughs> right when he's like, "Is your source the same as the source from?" the times and he's like actually our source had tie-dye uh, oh yeah it was this girl but that doesn't come back because that's not what happened in real life um, but uh that's not how they got out of it but you see what i mean in the sense of like we're seeing newspapers close we're seeing newspapers consolidate we're seeing local newspapers get bought out by national political interests we're seeing political interests owning newspapers uh, de facto as well as de jure and uh we're seeing this sort of independent voice of the of the free press in opposition to power which is you know not necessarily the rule for how newspapers work in America over the course of its history, but is an ideal worth aspiring to and something that's done a lot of good. And we're seeing the economics of it. Basically, what happened between then and now is that those dudes in the machine are the ones who went away. 
and they didn't necessarily went away, but they lost power. They the power of the machine is less. The power of the dudes doing, and I don't say that just because they are men. I'm also saying it because they are working class people, uh, and that they are like uh, you know grimy, grubby, non decision makers. It, they're the ones who get replaced by Zuckerberg, and and then the the makers of this movie are confused as to why you know Meryl Streep no longer has the power of this mighty steel beast to to foist justice upon the world well it's because you let those people and their power become though you don't know how much your power depended on their power and that's and that's i think the connection between then and now that the post doesn't make I mean, it sort of makes it in glorifying the beauty of the type and the lead and the machinery and all that stuff. But but in terms of relating it to the present, it relates it much more to the present in the way that Nixon is a man with his back turned to the country in much the same way that Trump seems to be a man who's turned upon himself and away from the world outside of himself. Um, that is for similar. But the big difference, which is that the scaling power of the newspaper is no longer really competitive that I mean, that was even a trend at the time of the movie when they're talking about the TV stations. That connection between then and now, the post doesn't really address, and kind of leaves to the frosted glass of Elizabeth Taylorian memory, right? Which like we just make the camera blurrier and blurrier, and the thing will maintain its state of beauty forever. Uh-huh. Um, a, a thing out of focus, you know, is is a joy forever. <laughs> and uh, beauty is truth, and truth is beauty. Uh, don't look too close. That's all you need to know. Well, right? I mean, I feel like um, I mean, given the 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 lessening power the machine and and the, also the image of Meryl Streep uh, as you know a stri- like as a winged victory or something or as like uh you know Nike astride the 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 steel beast right it's i i just feel like it's all the same only the names will change <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, your classic rock is about twenty years too not classic enough. For this <laughs> She's a cowboy on a on a steel printing press. She rides. <laughs> do 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 do. Get out my back door. <laughs> this 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 was a movie that like hasn't seen Tropic Thunder. <laughs> you know, Lincoln also oh. starts with an unnecessarily brutal battle scene. Actually, it's probably not unnecessarily brutal. It's probably necessary brutal in order to offset the fact that most of the other movies uh, most of the other scenes in the movies are committee meetings but like that like lincoln also starts with like you know machine guns uh well, not machine guns but like fire like rifles and death and death in the mud just dirty grimy death and uh and cannon fire and uh and that's what this movie starts with also and so does saving private ryan but saving private ryan kind of sticks with that vibe through the entirety <laughs> and doesn't have a series it does have committee meetings but it has relative fewer of them as the proportion of the movie progresses. Hey, Pete, since you brought up Shock of Thunder, I think you were referring, and also Creedence Clearwater Revival earlier, I think you are referencing the fact that this movie kickstarts off with uh, right uh, the CCR song, uh, Green River. Yeah. I believe, right? And how that's like uh, like so on the nose, and so like lampooned in movies like Tropic Thunder and others that uh, it, it, it I, I don't know like does it, it it it's a little bit of a shock maybe to like someone who is constantly on the lookout for these sort of things but is of a piece with what Matt was talking about how this is a in a lot of ways a very conventional middle brow type of movie yeah um, there, not necessarily a, yeah. as a critique of it but that's just that's that's what it is yeah well even more than that it's a it's a warm it's a movie that has something of a warmed over sense for the period that's very informed by the culture that's come before there's a uh, there's a series of Saturday Night Live sketches I don't know how many there are there's at least two where Bill Hader goes to a puppetry class and he plays I don't know if you guys have seen these it's when Bill Hader was in Saturday Night Live he goes to puppetry class as a grizzled veteran of Granada uh, he's like a special forces Granada veteran named Tony and the joke is and he talks like this and he says horrible things about the mud and the trees and the joke is that everybody else in the puppet class has a puppet who's like a stereotype that's not like them so it's like hey it's a me i'm a puppet or like oh my god i gotta go shopping i'm a puppet and tony talks like this and his puppet looks just like him and also talks like this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something of a deconstruction of that character because you're you are doing you know people who who have endured this sort of hardship a bit of a disservice by reducing the degree of dimensions by which they are portrayed right in cinema uh and in television no, Pete, to like you're, this you're, grizzled you're wrong you're wrong you're just wrong movies <laughs> can only mean one thing and characters can only be one thing and they have to mean it 
all the time at every moment. Like, it's okay, you know, like, it, it would be one thing to be able to mean only one thing, but then get a break sometimes where you don't have to mean anything, where you could mean zero or one things. There's, there's like a two-state um you know, uh, sort of information system where it's just like uh, where you're either in state meaning zero or state meaning one. But no, they have to mean one thing all the time. It's uh, it's it's a tough it's a tough burden, but that is the weight of history. Yeah, I mean, but even if you go back and watch Platoon, you know, Platoon is terribly reductive, and it also has a great degree of more diversity in approach to the Vietnam War than this does. The, the big thing I want to get to is that this is a movie in which the Vietnam War is universally and uncontroversially treated as a bad idea, a bad thing, something that obviously needs to end. Right. And that is a mischaracterization of the public mood around the Vietnam War of a rather immense quality. <laughs> like, yes, I'm sure for some people, it was always obvious that the Vietnam War was a bad thing that needed to end. But the idea that every smart person in the movie, even the people in charge of the government, know this is the case is an incredible simplification of the situation. Like that you don't run into anybody in the world of the Post who says, no, we're in Vietnam because we've got to go in there and we've got to fight these communists because communism is evil. Like, like I think there's like one or two lines about it in the entire movie, but like, but like, I just, I just don't believe that you could have these many different conversations with this many people. And there's nobody who's willing to say, yeah, sure. It's costing a lot of money and a lot of lives, but it's still important for us to do. And the, and, and, and in particular opposing it is wrong. Right. right? And, and, and um, this, I think it's also, it would be, uh, you know, in a similar, in a similar light, it would be sort of un, it would be untrue to kind of take the full-throated defense of this movie that I'm sure is going to be that has been and I'm sure will continue to be as it kind of marches through the 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 jungles of award season too soon um the the, uh, that like it's you know it's important to defend freedom of the press because I feel like our our sense of freedom of the press as an a- absolute good has has changed of a piece with the you know uh, the particular the particular brand uh, the particular expression of anti intellectualism that is um, you know that is happening now in the kind of distrust of of institutions like this like for for goodness sake like she is a uh, DC socialite right like she is an elite Elitist. Uh, she is an establishment figure, right? Like, and all all of these uh, all all of these things sort of militate against um, the the discursive thrust on our time, whether it's politically with sort of outsiders or whether it's business wise with dis- disruption. Um, disruption quote unquote and like it's not I, I don't think it's necessarily this movie's job to say i think this movie's job is to to sort of uh to to a certain to, to a certain extent comfort the comfortable who who believe themselves afflicted but the the um I don't know. This this is well, not. That's th- the freedom of the press angle. The the element of it about women taking charge of their own lives. This is also. I think that's part of the movie that rings dr- deeper and truer to an extent because that's an actual problem. Well, sure. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. F- fair enough. Um, uh, yeah. Fair enough. Not that and- the First Amendment isn't an actual problem, but it's couched in the kind of. It's, this is a problem that has padded walls and strata around it. Sorry, I'm 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 treading water for a little bit for you, Matt, so that you can gather your thoughts and finish finish this. Well, strong. it's interesting. I wasn't um, I wasn't talking about the yeah I wasn't I, I wasn't it, yeah I wasn't talking about the the feminist uh, part of the movie at all or the movie. I guess yeah. it, I, it would be wrong to call it that because I think we haven't necessarily established conclusively what where it comes down uh, on on these things because like that newsroom seems pretty cool, right? And there are two women in it and. And then a bu- two women uh, working, and then a bunch of secretaries. Um, yeah, you know, and that, and or I guess one woman working who is Jesse Mueller from uh, the Carol King musical, and from uh, Waitress, the Broadway musical. You know, a, a singer and and very good actress. Um, a lot of lot of actually really good New York theater actors in this movie. Uh, that right, like that's it. That's 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 it and that like there there is maybe not as uh there is maybe not the systemic critique of cultural sexism that you would uh 
that that you would like to see from a modern from a modern sensibility and i think that like there's not necessarily this it's not necessarily what i was about to say is it's not necessarily this movie's project to make a case for uh to make a case for a certain kind of elitism a certain kind of aaron sorkin-esque elitism where god's in his heaven and all's right uh in the world right like uh, god's in his heaven and and uh uh, tom hanks has his ink-stained fingers on the typewriter or something and all's all's right with the world uh meryl streep is at her dinner party and all's right with the world but there i think there is a little bit um you know there is a little bit in this movie that is that is a defense of um what you might call universal enlightenment values against the idea that there is no universality anymore and that this lack of universality constitutes social progress. So that seems like the thing that – because I've been thinking a lot about the Sorkin verse versus the Spielberg verse of doing your job. Yeah. And the biggest difference is that in the Sorkin verse, when you want to go from one place to another, you walk next to somebody and talk, and uh, you pass through walls and such. But in the Spielberg verse, when you want to go somewhere, someone hands you a crumpled up note and you run, <laughs> right? And, and, and you run in your sneakers. And, uh, and that it becomes a sort of personal struggle that is that one person is doing. It becomes this one, the, the thing that one person is doing matters. And it, this, so this movie is not there to aggregate well, it's aggregate is the wrong word because it's you can't necessarily aggregate the experiences of individuals into a collective moment. That's not how subjectivity works. This, but this is not a movie that is uh, that is a movie that shows the difference between making an intellectual high level critique of a system or a system uh, or a system of systems, a, a paradigm, a way of thinking, a structure of power uh, versus the story of a person. Dealing with it, the hero's journey of somebody dealing with it. Uh, these are sort of two different ways of talking about how human beings interact with history. One of them is more leaning towards this sort of great man theory, which of course this movie is fighting against in a bunch of ways that are interesting. But but also there's this idea of like like I think of the difference between something like Saving Private Ryan and something like The Thin Red Line, where and this that was like the the years of many World War II movies, where you have this sort of Joycean identity collapse movie about being out on Guadalcanal where everybody is just full of death. And, uh, and then, you know, Apocalypse Now is probably a more mainstream reference. But even that is like a little bit more heroic. And this idea of Saving Private Ryan where it's like, well, it's still worthwhile for us to see the journeys of individual people. These are stories that matter to us. There's a power and importance to these stories that those other more intellectual high-level critiques that might be or might not be more robust, they don't have that same power as these stories about people, uh, which I think is kind of – Spielberg seems to be a humanist in that respect, uh, like a singular humanist. Maybe not an individualist, but somebody who cares about the, the experiences and the specificity of an individual person, like a little boy saving an alien, you know, is, sure, is a or huge a, gesture. Or a or a uh, or a platoon saving a private Ryan, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think of James Spader like running as fast as he can, winded to try to bribe another congressman in Lincoln, <laughs> right? Or like, uh, uh, and I'm trying to think, or like Tom Hanks on the scooter in the terminal. But that's a little bit different. <laughs> that's a little bit. That's not quite the same. But but even like, um, you know, the in Jurassic Park. That, that, you know, you have computer programming, you have, like, computer interface scenes which are turned into, you know, heroic struggles of individual people. Right. It's uh, actually the, the little girl in the – Meryl Streep's granddaughter in the movie grows up to be the girl in Jurassic Park who says, <laughs> this is a Unix system. This is a Unix system. I know this. I know this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think uh, it's often said that podcasts are the first draft of history, and I think it's time to uh, – uh, to put this one out into the world so that it can be revised and marked up. If you would like to uh, contribute some editorial, uh, you know, stuff to this uh, Overthinking It podcast, you can find us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or in the comments on the show notes on the website for this episode. Exciting couple weeks till uh, till the big five zero zero. You will not believe what we have planned for episode 500. You literally won't believe it. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. 
Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.